Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas. Our guest today is Marlon Peterson, the author of Bird Uncaged, an abolitionist freedom song. In addition to being an author, Marlon is a prison abolitionist and gun violence activist. You might also know Marlon as the host of the Decarcerated podcast and from the TED Talk he gave in 2017. Today, we talk about possibilities and the way we can embrace people who are incarcerated and the work of abolition. The Sax Book Club pick for June is The Undying, a meditation on modern illness by Anne Boyer. We will discuss the book on the show on Wednesday, June 30th with Michael Denzel-Smith. The main way I'm able to make this podcast is through the support of listeners who join the Stacks Pack on Patreon. They contribute $5 a month and earn perks like our virtual book club, a community of book lovers and discounts on the Stacks merch. And in exchange for their generosity, I am able to make the Stacks week in and week out. If you love this show, please consider joining the Stacks Pack. Head to patreon.com slash the Stacks to join. I want to give a quick thank you to some of our newest members of the Stacks Pack. Sandra Wiebay, Alexandra, Andrianne Breton, Joe, Lauren Paiva, Loretta Cambrone, Chiara Murray, CO, Carrie Watson, and Lauren Herber. Thank you all so much. You make this show possible. All right, let's get to my conversation with Marlon Peterson. All right, everybody, I'm so excited today. I am talking with Marlon Peterson, author of Bird Uncaged. It's your first book, a memoir. Marlon, welcome to the Stacks. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah, uh, it's, you know, you're one of the first interviews I'm having, so I'm definitely excited, nervous, all the things. Oh, good. Well, (laughs) if it makes you feel better, I also am nervous. I'm nervous before every interview I do, and so you're not alone in the nerves, though I did not write a book, so... (laughs) I can't relate on that part. Um, so let's just dive in. In about 30 seconds or so, can you tell us about Bird Uncaged? Yeah. Uh, so the full title is Bird Uncaged, an abolitionist freedom song. And yeah, so it's a memoir of sorts. I like to say a memoir of sorts in that it obviously documents my life growing up in you know Brooklyn as a you know son of, of Caribbean immigrants, my journey to incarceration or through that. And But more so, I think it's a book about the very everyday experience, everyday traumas that Black folks, you know, who experience, but also as it relates to how systems impact them, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a book that's dealing with interpersonal and internal things, 
but not letting systemic, you know, racism and all those things off the hook. Like, I don't want to, it's just not just a, you know, a, a black boy got better because he, you know, read a couple of books. It's a, right. it's a, it's a black boy struggling into a man, but also interrogating himself. Yeah. As well as interrogating the, the, the system as a whole. Yeah, that's really well said. There's there are a lot of different pieces working throughout the book. Your story, the systems, your family, which I want to get to, but kind of where I want to start is one of the things we learn about you pretty early on in the book is that you always were a writer. You always enjoyed writing. You were always writing things. I'm curious how long you knew you wanted to write this book. And then once you you know, maybe you thought of that a long time ago, or maybe you thought of it right before you started writing it. And I want to know how hard was it to actually write it all down? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, you know, I started writing as a little kid just in terms of in school. And, you know, I had a teacher that sort of exposed me to that. Oh, you know, you could write. I didn't know what that meant at that time. I thought right. I, I could do good on tests. <laughs> you know, that's what I thought, right? Get good essays and book, book reports. Um, but I think so I, went in, I went, I was incarcerated at 19, and the writing there sort of started through journaling. I think the first time I decided that, the first time I realized I wanted to write this book was about 2004, 2005. And I actually started to write the book then. I actually started, I have typewritten notes of the actual uh, 20 pages I wrote back then. Um, and um, that's when I first started, but you know, it's been a journey since then. So I started then, and at the time I felt as if I was, I was about 24, 25, something around there. And I was like, I'm too young. I, I, you know, who am I to be writing a book about myself at this age, <laughs> right? I mean, right. I've been through some stuff, but, I, you know, I felt like I hadn't lived enough life to write anything substantial and worthwhile. Um, but, I, you know, I started writing it itself probably, you know, it's a, it's a four-year process of writing a book and in, in, like into where you have a finished product now. So it took you four years from when you sat down to actually write this book this time. Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm trying to decide. I, I have so many things that I want to talk to you about. And, you know, I'm looking at my notes as I talk to you and I'm like, shit, how are we going to get all this in? So I guess we should just dive in and then and then we'll see how it goes. Because I want to talk about your story, but I also want to sort of talk about the criminal justice system and because you're also an activist and you also do so mm-hmm. much speaking. So I guess we can start there, which is in all the speaking that you've done around incarceration and your experiences and the things that you've seen and the people that you've met and the ways that you've impacted the system, how is that different for you than writing than writing this story? I think, yeah, yeah, it's a very good question. Actually, I really appreciate that question because that's one of the purposes of this book. I think this is my opportunity to be as honest as I can ever be about it, Mm. right? Uh, And I'm not saying I've been dishonest, but, you know, in certain spaces, you don't have that much time to go into as much detail. It's not about um, me really telling the details of my life and how and why I'm here in front of them, in front of this audience or in this panel or what have you. And, you know, it's, it's a book that really in so many ways is being very critical of people who may consider themselves, uh, you know, criminal justice advocates or activists and all that sort of stuff. Right. You know, but, and the last thing I see, this is the thing that I think is really important and makes it different. I don't let America off the hook mm. in this book, right? I don't let it off the hook, and I make it painstakingly difficult to 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 uh, to to miss that, right? Mm. You know, and I give much detail, and I think you know I try to give as much like a texture to it and layers in a way that you don't always have time in a you know in a thirty minute talk or forty five minute talk or you know 
whatever, right? A five minute interview on a whatever. Right, right. You know, yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's, it's, you know, I want, and I, it also allows me to weave my entire experience, but I want to say our entire experiences into it. That's why it's big. You know, I spend time with my family and, and, and those dynamics that leads to the criminal legal space in ways that most people don't think about these connections, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely the most honest way, my most honest description analysis of the criminal legal system, but also of Americanism. Right. You said you started writing this the first time, maybe in 2004, 2005. We're now, I don't know, 15 years later or something. Long I'm bad time. at math. I'm bad Long at math. Time. So let's say maybe more Back than that. And all that now. <laughs> yeah. Is this, is this book what you dreamed it would be? Is this, is what you do have, is what we're getting? Is this what you thought was the process, what you thought it would be? You know, um, uh, hmm. you know, when I, I, when I started writing this book, I remember speaking to like my editor and, you know, agent, I was like, I'm not, I was just always intentional that I didn't write, want to write a book that was this sort of look what this guy went through and look at him now, da-da, and then we all clap at the end and walk <laughs> away, right? Right. right? I, you know, I was very conscious about that. And so when I see the finished product now, you know, I love what I wrote. And the reason why I can tell you I love what I wrote because I know I, I, I know I, I, I didn't let myself off the hook in the book, mm. right? And, I, and that was important for me is that, to that, you know, oftentimes, in, you know, it can happen in a, particularly in the memoirs genre where they're, you know, the writer, the author, whomever, don't, they don't do enough self-critical work. Yeah. I mean, we have examples now, definitely, you know, the big home key essays, obviously one of those people, you know, um, but I wanted to be, I didn't want to let myself off the hook. And particularly because, you know, I have a complicated experience, right? There's, you could, you could be happy for me in some, in some instances of the book, you could be mad at me and disgusted with me in some instances in the book. And I wanted to write a book that explains like, when people see me now and, you know, I'm in all these rooms, I get to give talks and all, like you mentioned, like, you know, Ted talk and all them type of things. People want to, want to believe that a finished product is finished. Right. And I, and and in this book, I don't give you the impression that, you know, this is a finished product, but it's not finished. And that's how everyone's life is. That's how pretty much how all our experiences are. That's how it should be. That's why the the latter half of the book title is an abolitionist freedom song, because abolition is a politic of constantly, constantly in self-interrogation for the most part, right? You know, that's the only way you can see that a world without police or prison is possible if you can see that how internally how you're contributing to that place. Mm. You know, and, and for it, I wanted my book to be in so many ways like a I wanted this book, my life to be sort of a case study in what that should, how that can be and how difficult it is, but also how amazingly beautiful it can be when we sort of get to certain different realizations in our lives. What part of the process of writing this, of the self-interrogation, of the, you know, not letting yourself off the hook, as you say, what part of that came easily and what parts of writing this was was really hard? When I was a kid, a uh, young adult, uh, 18, 17, somewhere around, I speak about, you know, how, you know, instance where me, a couple of friends, of uh, me and my friends almost, sex, almost sex, pretty much did self sexually assault a woman, right? You know, and then we didn't go, all the act didn't happen, but we did enough that we mentally assaulted her, right? And it was hard because I, I was looking at myself mm. and I, you know, and, and, 
and I was, and for what it's worth, when you write, you question who you are at this point. You're like, is this my power? I say, I, you know, I, I, you know, I'm this type of person. I have this certain politic in life and I try to advocate and I write and I do all this sort of stuff. I create programs. I'm like, damn, bro, this is what you are a part of. And it took you years before you even mattered. Like, I, it didn't bother me until probably within the last couple of years that that happened. And I mm. knew it happened. Right. You know, and, and so that was one thing that was, uh, you know, part was difficult. I think the part, and there are many instances where it's difficult. When I go back into my early childhood years, it's, you know, that I had not thought about literally until I was writing. I said, oh, my God, this happened. Hmm. And it was like in a recess of my mind that I had somehow buried. But I think some parts that were easy, um, you know, it's easy for me. The parts where uh, when I speak about influence of like music in my life, right? Hmm. And music, you know, I, you know. I, I'm not a music. I don't consider myself a musician, but I play a musical instrument, a steel okay. pen. Um, but I know it's parts of it, or even like the music I speak about when I'm inside, when I was in prison, and how I would have these like club nights where I would be in my cell and I would, you know, turn my cell into a club in a sense, right? And I'll play like imagine somewhere else. You know, the, I think the, the parts of the book that were easy for me is where I know I imagined where in my past I was still imagining possibilities that weren't in front of me. Right. You know, and that was that was that was that was dreamy. You just took me exactly where I want to go, which is one of the themes of the book is imagination, and it's a huge theme of the book. I think it's probably one of the things that runs throughout. We see this when you're a child. We see this when you're incarcerated. We see this with you now reflecting as the author leading us through this book, and you say that imagination is there to create hope and freedom and fun. And I'm wondering, especially while you were incarcerated, that's what you were using it for. I'm wondering now, how are you using your imagination? I'm still, uh, author is one of the things I do. I'm thankful I can add that to my you know list of things. But I think about collectively about issues of trauma and incarceration, more so on a, not only in a local sense, but on a global sense. And I think about the possibilities of, I imagine the possibilities, imagine where, you know, marginalized folks and in the legacy of other people who've come before me, right? I'm not doing anything new, are able to build this collective global power to sort of not only dis- to disrupt and dismantle these systems that cages. And here's the thing, when I think about systems that cages, I'm I'm definitely talking about jails and prisons, but I'm also talking about the mindsets that cages too, mm. that prevent us from building this collective global power. And that's hard work, but I imagine, but the thing about like, I know it's possible. And the reason why I know it's possible, I've experienced situations where death was probably the better option was the only thing imaginable or not only naming some of this death where there was no hope in sight. And I've seen people, and I'm only talking about me. I've seen people do things that we might want to consider superhuman in a sense. And I'm not even talking about any sort of muscular strength. Right. And, and I just know how, what, what humans are capable of. And I know what capable, particularly black and brown folks. I mean, the book is also, you know, I'm talking to us in many ways and I, I know what, we're capable of, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and I, and, and, you know, in my last couple of years of life, not my last, in the, in the, in the last couple of years, <laughs> that was crazy. In my last couple of years, I've been able to do a bit of traveling in different parts of the world and in the same sort of hoods that like I grew up in, I've been in prisons in other parts of the world. And, you know, I've been in community with a lot of people doing amazing things, amazing things. And they just give me the, that I know what is possible for us. Cause I know we're we already doing it on an everyday level. I just don't know if we always like really pinpoint it. Like, this is what we're doing. We can create this power collectively. I just know it's so po- po- uh, possible. Where did you go? Ah, so I've been to uh, 
South, I've been to South Africa and, uh, you know, I've been in communities there where gun violence is a huge issue. I've also been in prisons there. I've been in a, a particular experience in South Africa, um, in a, in a town, a rural area called Mahaliasburg, where the women have pretty much created a community out of unimaginable terror where like, because of once again, how capitalism works and all that imperialism works, they, you know, all the men in this village were pretty much killed because they were striking mm-hmm. against, you know, they were working in mines. And so their husbands, fathers, sons, whatever, um, brothers, and these women have created a whole new community out of, you know, all that terror, schools and and hospitals and, uh, and, and, and agriculture in terms of agribusiness for themselves in this rural community out of nothing, really. Right. So, I mean, that just stands out to me. But I've also been to, you know, similar situations in Ghana. I've been to Trinidad, where my family is from, where I consider home. I've spent a lot of time in communities there that are dealing with a lot of harm and trauma, been to prisons there. Um, and, you know, I've been, to, I've been to, you know, completely different. I've been to Jordan and I spent time in a refugee camp, hmm. in refugee camps, and seeing a tremendous trauma there, but also tremendous re- resilience there. Mm-hmm. And and possibilities, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? I'm um, a different type of caging in a sense, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've been to these places and I've been privileged. I'm blessed. I'm thankful to be able to be in these places. But I know I've visited these places for a reason. Right. right? I know it wasn't just there just to be oh, put this on the list. Like, I saw this place, right. you know, but it, because of my experiences, it makes those, those, those travels even much more uh, important to the work. Right. I keep hearing you talk about uh, possibility. I feel like you've said that a lot. And first of all, I love that word. I wish that I, I wish it was part of my thinking more like thinking about possibility. I just, it's not a word that I don't know. It's not a word that comes to me naturally, but whenever I hear other people use it, I just love it. Um, you got this wonderful podcast. That's a possibility dream that is now here. Sure. No, I, I think that I, I think that I live lots of possibilities, but I don't ever think about it that way to myself. If that makes sense, you know, like there's some words like, that people use that just aren't part of my own personal vocabulary, even though you could definitely apply it to the things that I'm doing. But that being said, you're talking a lot about abolition, about, you know, world without prisons, without police, of this possibility of this. What does that look like for humans, for Americans specifically? But I think it could translate across the across the world, especially in these places you're naming. But what does that look like for us on a day-to-day level? Like how can we be working towards abolition? in our own selves and our own relationships? Yeah, definitely asking different questions. I believe we learn more from questions than we do from answers. You know, I often tell people or, or implore people when they watch the news or see on their, on their, on their, on their social media uh, feed about, you know, some harm that was done in the community, right? You know, these two young teenagers did this thing or whatever it is, right? And they did something that's horrific, Right. Instead of ask, instead of the impulsive reaction is that, well, you know, they should go to jail or, you know, I would do this to them or what have you. What would cause them to do that in the first place? Like what led them to do that? Right. And I, and the reason why I implore people to do that, because that's hard to ask, mm-hmm. particularly when you know this thing happened and may trigger something that happened to you or a friend or a family member. And that's hard work. But, you know, that is the process of like this world that we imagine getting to the root. You know, there's so many people who speak to that. Angela Davis, Myra Kaba, uh, Dr. Uh, Ruth uh, Bosom Gilmore, they talk about getting to the root. And the way to get to the root is by asking those questions. Because when you ask those questions, you see it in so many ways, like how what these people may have been a part of 
is not without, which is not outside the realm of possibilities of what you could be capable of mm. if you had a certain amount of experiences. Of course, all of us aren't going to do something harmful, hurt somebody, you know, physically and all, all those things. But we're capable. And in the book, I speak about that. Like we're, it's, we're capable of it. Mm-hmm. Everyone human is, particularly you put them in a in a in a in a, in a certain set of circumstances. And I'm not even including mental uh, mental uh, mental health into this or or instabilities. I'm I'm, I'm saying people who have a set sound mind, whatever that is nowadays. But people who are sound mind who don't have a mental illness and those sort of things. It's possible for us. And I'm not saying it's excusable. I'm not saying I'll be supposed to say, well, I understand why you did it, so you get a break. That's not what I'm saying. I, Part of this everyday work of, of seeing possibilities or this abolitionist possibility is, un, is is understanding that what people are doing are not superhuman things. Mm. People are doing human things because humans do these things to each other. I mean, it kind of goes to, you didn't ask this, but like when people say that's a monster, that right. person is a monster. I, when you do that, I think about Mary Shelley's, you think about Frankenstein, like right. a monster is created, like it was created in a certain, and that, and that, and that, thing that this person created was not supposed to be this quote unquote monster in that book. I remember writing an essay about this some years ago, but like there were societal, societal uh, influences that led this person to doing this harmful thing and harmful things, you know? And so I'm against those things. I'm against terms like that's a monster or, or another term, like I'm getting to, I'm trying to put my author hat on and take up my advocacy and activist hat at times, but it's hard to sort of, you know, extract, you know, separate them. But like, you know, I've, a lot of my work since I've been home has been around gun violence and gun violence prevent, prevention. And, uh, you know, it's a term that we all use that I used to use a lot that I no longer use. And there's a term called uh, senseless gun violence. Mm. And the reason why, particularly when it applies to, you know, violent community gun violence, intra-community violence, where, yes, the overt thing might have been, you looked at me differently. That doesn't make no sense. Or because you got this color, that doesn't make sense. But what is very sensible is that people in certain communities who have generationally been exposed to a certain type of oppression and harm and state harm and trauma, it's very sensible that you put them in these situations that they're reacting in harmful ways. Right. Not excusable, but it's not senseless. When you, t- when you make it senseless, you take it out of the political realm. Right. You, don't, you, don't, you take the state off the hook again. Right. Yeah. And I think when we use terms like monster or, I mean... We're just to be transparent. We're recording this right now during the um, Derek Chauvin yeah. trial, and and a lot of the things that you know, I'm not really watching, so I, I'm not a fully. I'm trying not to watch. It's too much for me. But you know, we're hearing the same things that they are scared, and that and that George Floyd was huge and a brute, and all these things. And when and when you do that, you take away the humanity of people. You take away also the like you're saying the cause and effect when you make someone other then you don't have to try to relate. You don't have to try to understand. You don't have to try to see what what the cause and response is, right? Or whatever. Like there's there's no accountability for the outside judger person, if you will, whether that's actually the state or whether that's just you and me talking about something fucked up that our friend said, right? Like you take <laughs> away, you take away um, that accountability for the people who are passing judgment. I, this sort of ties into that. Um, in your book, I mean, you're very clear in your book that the reason that you were incarcerated was that you were part of a crime that ended with two people being killed and two people being shot. 
And, you know, there, there's no question of your involvement. You're very upfront about that. And I, and it made me think a lot about this idea of innocence as a prerequisite for a public rallying cry when it comes to Mm. prison Mm. reform that we're always Mm. being told, you know, this person didn't, doesn't deserve prison as if people who do commit crimes do, or that the conditions of prison are acceptable for people who have committed crime. And I'm wondering what you have to say as someone who has experienced life inside prison, who was incarcerated for about a decade, but just under a decade, just over a decade, just over a decade, just over a decade. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering what you think about this, like idea of innocence being a prerequisite for for this public support of prison reform. Well, I think I think innocence is important. I mean, I just have a friend who did 24 years who was innocent. He came home just the other day, and you know, and you know, so innocence is important. Obviously, it is a thing, but the problem with it is that we believe that the way to deal with guilty people is to harm them more. Right. Right. So here's a better way to even answer the question is answer your questions for your audience. Listen, is like how many of you listen now have ever heard prison jokes about somebody being sexually assaulted or physically assaulted? And we laugh and we joke. Right. And I'm included in that. Right. In terms of who laugh and joke about those things. But those things are based on real life. Mm-hmm. The likelihood of being sexually assaulted or physically abused in prison, especially for women, but definitely for all people, men included, and trans folks in prison as well. Like all these, those things are, those things are very real possibilities. So we know that you go to this place, you could be hurt more, right? And and the reason why I, the reason why I ask folks to even just sort of contemplate that and think about that for a second is that. Prison is supposedly, is you know, purportedly, ostensibly supposed to be one of them places where you get better, right? right? That's how we say, it, right? Rehabilitation, right? You need to get better. You need to work. You need to work on this thing that you, you know, just act with this behavior. Well, that's not the place where you when people that get better. You know, people get better despite prison. People don't get better because of prison. You know what I mean? And I, so, the idea that in our society as humans that to prevent harm from happening again, we will send people to be harmed. That's what we're saying. I mean, we don't mean I think about it like that, but that's what we're saying. I'm, because you harm people, I'm going to send you someplace to get harmed so you get better. Right. That's actually not sensible. Right. Right. That, now, is, senseless. That's, that is senseless. I mean, don't get me wrong. We can do better at creating ways and, and mechanisms for people who need to be extracted and be taken away because they will do commit more harm. I'm just saying that the way that we've come up with and the way that we, you know, the, the mechanism that we've, we are accustomed to, prisons aren't the place. So whether you're guilty or innocent, that ain't the place to be. And here, think about it. Prisons always had high, prison statistics always showed high levels of recidivism. People, And there's many reasons why people, you know, that may be have you ever considered maybe one of the reasons why is because prisons don't fix the thing? Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. It's kind of like maybe prisons aren't the thing. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Right. You know what I mean, I, and, and the thing about it, the other part of it is this: what even if you think about what's happening now with a Derek Chauvin case, is that they are trying to create a story that this person was probably guilty about something, right. which is why it makes it was okay for them to die. Right. You know what I mean? And 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 maybe he was guilty of using drugs. So is that a prerequisite for death? <laughs> right. 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 You know, right. So, yeah. 
if you had a magic wand and you could wave it and make one thing different about the incarceration system in America, what what would you change to, today? Um, magic wand. I mean, you can't, and you can't be like, I would just get rid of it. Like you have, you know, yeah, obviously yeah, yeah, that yeah. would ruin, I mean, that's what probably you would do if you could do that, but you know, within, within the system a little bit. One thing that I'd probably get into the weeds a little bit is I would get rid of what's called a felony murder statute. And the felony murder statute is kind of like for what it's worth that got me convicted. So when I was first, well, right when I was first arrested, I was facing a death penalty in New York. New York at the time still had a death penalty and a felony a felony murder statute is that well, while in the commission of, if you were um, in the commission of a felony, in this case, a robbery and a murder happened, even if you didn't shoot the person or how or killed the person, everybody who knew about it, who wanted to be a part of the robbery is now uh, culpable of the, of the homicide. And that's an old uh, law that comes back from you know, from old common law times and in many other parts of the world, including parts of London where these things come from, they're no longer, they're, they're no longer in place. And I think that's one of the things I would get rid of because it, it's a catch-all. That's why when you hear about, you know, particularly here, I'm in New York, where you'll have these like, quote-unquote, gang takedowns. And you'll hear about 100 people, 100 and some odd people getting arrested. Everybody from the person who might have been selling the drugs, so Big Kingpin, to the person who might have... Um, sold one bag of drug, they're all going to jail, right? And obviously, there's a whole thing about drugs being criminalized. That's a whole other conversation. But, you know, it's a way to catch Black people and right. brown people. It's a way to catch us all in the system. So I would get rid of that immediately. Okay. And then I just, hopefully just one more question on this, but who knows? I, I can't be trusted to just say one more question about anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, do you, what would you tell people who are not necessarily connected to the prison system immediately? So maybe not a family member or a close friend who's been incarcerated. How can they help? How can they be in service to the millions of people who are behind bars and the millions of people who are related to, closely connected to, and are also serving a sort of sentence? How, how can they help? I mean, on a personal, I mean, I think on an inter, in a, in a interpersonal level, you can write people, right? You can send them energy. You can, I, I call it energy if you're able to, obviously, or if you're able to, and you feel safe enough to do so always, you know, throw those things in there, you know, communicate with people, particularly if you have a friend or a family member behind bars, it doesn't have to be every day or every week. It could be consistency and consistency be like every six months, I'm gonna write them every three months or whatever. So every week, but I think that's one of the ways to send energy. But I also think is I wrote this book for people to, there, there are many points throughout the book where I think I've had a few people who read it and be like, wow, intervention could have happened here. Mm-hmm. Or the education system, this could have happened here when this happened to you as a kid. Or that should have happened there, right? I think people, I want people to, I think people can do a better job at looking at the nuance of people who are in these places. And that doesn't mean that you have to communicate with somebody in prison. That means that in the conversation that you have about a thing that's happening on TV or on the news or in your neighborhood, Try to hard do the hard work of looking of searching for the nuance. Mm-hmm. Always look for the nuance because you know I, that's what I had to do when I was inside. Because believe it or not, just because I was also convicted in prison, all that sort of stuff, I also had to see the humanity in people around me. Right. And right. you know, and and that's how I always say prison is a place where I learned and really fell in love with humans. Hmm. Right. Because that's we I saw humans at the absolute worst. I spent a decade with people including myself, who are at their absolute worst. And I still saw them laugh. Hmm. And I still saw them want to write birthday cards for their kids and, you know, help each other out, learn how to read or 
or play music. Like I saw all that sort of stuff and play Monopoly. I just, you know, I, I saw people do all those things, right? And it was hard for me. I want people to understand just because you go to jail doesn't mean that, oh, well, you're amongst your, you're amongst all the people that are just like you. So it's just comfortable. No, I had to get used to people too, people who were different religions than me, right? Or at the time, or who were, who were this other part of it, I don't think, I don't know if I get, it's funny, like I can't remember all the details, but in the book, I speak about a sexual assault that happened to me as a kid. And I speak about it in the fact that reason why I didn't tell anybody that it happened to me, I, didn't, I kept it to myself for eight years. Reason why I didn't say, one of the reasons why I didn't say anything to anybody, because I didn't want people to think I was gay. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I speak about that in a way, because in a larger conversation around cages, that homophobic cage or the cage of homophobia was one of the things that harmed me more. <laughs> that cage harmed me more because I didn't get the help that I could have gotten as a young, as a 14 year old kid. But I'm bringing that into the conversation now because it was through prison that, that, that whole, that notion that, that sick, I want to call it, but that cage of homophobia is where I was able to dust that off. And it wasn't because necessarily I was around people who were, who were queer, who were gay all the time. Yes, I was, but I finally sat back and really understood, saw humanity in all its senses and not saying these people were, were, were without humanity. But what I mean is that like, I was able to dust off stereotypes about people and my own prejudices by being around everybody you can imagine. Right. And I was also in so many ways that I was able to release myself from different cages while in that cage. Mm. Okay. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and talk more. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I want to talk about the title and the cover. I want to, I think that there is a kind of a cute story about the cover. So I want to hear where the cover came from. And also you kind of talk, talked about the title already. So we don't have to talk about the title, but we can, <laughs> but I want to talk about the cover. That's what I want to talk about. Tell us about yeah. it. The title, I mean, excuse me, the cover. So, I mean, the cover, I not have locks. So in the cover, I don't have locks on it. So that's an older, so there's a couple of stories about that. I know the one we get getting to, let me get to that. I want to okay. say that. <laughs> but that, that picture was taken for a whole nother reason years ago in front of the building I was born, I grew up in, right? Um, I moved I moved from that building when I was 10 or 11, but it was taken in front of that building. So it's sort of like a full circle. But the other part of it is really fun and loving and sweet and makes me smile is that my niece. So my great niece, you believe I, I got a great niece, but my mm-hmm. great niece, Logan, who's six, um, I had a couple of options for the cover and colors and all that sort of stuff. So I suddenly sent it to experts. So I sent it to her <laughs> <laughs> and, and she chose that cover. She's like, that's the one I like. And that was the cover I chose because she chose it. You know, my, my niece, um, I mean, that's my heart, right? And that's my little, that's my little homie. She got a lot of energy. She's one of the feistiest little people I know. <laughs> um, and she makes me happy. You know what I mean? And and um, and in the book, honestly, I speak about my nephew, who's her father. Okay. Right? My nephew, who, uh, you know, he he is super important in my life and my journey. I speak about him. He's only, other than my mother, he's the only person I have an actual picture of in the book. Um, and that's his daughter. And he's like an extent, she's an extension of him in so many ways. So, you know, it, it, it felt good. It felt right that she's the one that picked the cover for the book. My little, my little, Log- I call her Logie. Hey, Logie. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that story. You posted a video of your family um, as you were pulling the books out of the arcs out of a box or something. Has your family read it? What do they think? Yeah. My family don't read books like that. No? <laughs> I got, you know, I, here's a, so my sister read it. Um, and I want to, I'm going to speak about that in a second. Um, and I reason why I'm, I brought that up almost in jest, but, me writing a book is a thing that is foreign to my family. Like, you know, we don't, I don't come from a family of academics, activists, organized, none of that. We just, you know, we're not, we don't come from that. Right. We come from other things, but we're not that, you know, um, we're not big book readers. <laughs> I mean, members of my family aren't big book readers, at least my immediate family. And that's not no knock on them because they're good life, they're great life learners and leaders and teachers. Um, but I will say the, the book, I wanted the book to, we have just like any family, black families particularly, we all got sort of trauma and a whole bunch of shit that's in there. And it is thus far served as a catalyst to speak about things mm. that we don't talk about. You know, we in the book, the first chapter of the book is called Hiding. And it speaks about me, but it speaks about in so many ways how, you know, my mother's a little girl had to hide physically because how, you know, Eurocentric notions of what prettiness look like, even mm. in a West Indian country, predominantly black country. You know, um, how that caused her to hide in so many ways or or coming here and then being immigrants and not having, you know, documentation, how they had to hide. And, you know, and, and those things lead to so many 
but how I hide and how I hid my own trauma from people. Right. Um, and it just opened up conversations. You know, my brother and I, who, you know, we as young, young folks, we didn't have a good relationship. And I speak about that a little bit in the book. But like it's opened up opportunities to talk about those things. You know, it's, you know, I dedicated a book to my the younger version to myself and also to my parents because I know that I know their stories haven't been told either. I know mm-hmm. their I know their stories. Have, I know my little version of me, my little stories now being told. But I know my parents story weren't, weren't isn't, hasn't been told. Maybe I do that at some point in the future. But, you know, it, it's opening up conversations. And, and, and for my sister, who who is the one who read it, she read it in a couple of days. <laughs> she read maybe like two, three days she read the book. My my big my, I only have one sister and she's 11 years older than me. Played a great role in raising me too as a little kid. It, it's opened up things for her in her own life, mm. you know? And I'm happy that it's doing that work. Because, you know, as a writer, you know, you're writing for the public, for the public gaze. But, you know, I wrote this book, I knowing that the public would read it, but I wrote it with with certain people in mind. Mm. And those people in my family are the people I had in mind. Also because, I mean, they're the ones that were with me through all the trauma and drama. The ones that had to deal with my trauma and drama. Right. I'm glad that they read it. I'm glad your sister read it. You talked about the younger version of yourself. What do you think that that younger you would say to you now? Uh... <laughs> I'm not gonna cry, but I think. <laughs> I, 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 um, but I think it. it Marlo, I refer to the younger version version of me as Marlo because that's the name I, you know, used to call me Marlo and not Marlin. I don't know. I, I, to be short, I think Marlo would say thank you, mm-hmm. thank you for caring about me. And you know, I don't want to give people an impression that I come from an uncaring family or anything like that. But you know, I think as a kid, I suffered a lot in silence, and um. And I think I always wanted, uh, uh, I always wanted people. I, I always think needed people to to hear me, even though I didn't know how to, how to, um, how to express it. And I think now, just seeing it, I think Marlo would feel happy that that I didn't forget about him, and that I'm finally showing him off. Mm. You might not cry. I might cry. Uh, one of us might cry. Okay, we're gonna transition a little bit just to kind of the process of writing your book. And this is a very important question to me, which is how do you like to write? How many hours a day? How often is there music or no? Are you in your home? Are you out in the world? And this is the important part. Do you have snacks or beverages or rituals? (laughs) Okay. So first of all, how often do I write? I'm the best at being inconsistent. Okay. Uh, (laughs) I was prepared for these talks. I always hear authors say things. I wake up in the morning right before I get my first cup of tea and I sit down or I do this at night. I be, yeah. Man, y'all are so good at that. I'm the most inconsistent. I, I get my best writing done in the late hours, though. I could be honest okay. with you, late hours. It, it just I think I developed that that uh, habit from writing in jail um, when it was the quietest. So I do that. It has to be music, Tracy. It, I mean, when I say it has to be, I can't. I can't write without music, and I, uh-huh. and music is super important to me. And not so much that I get to hear. I got to hear the lyrics, but I got to hear rhythm. Okay. I need. I need to bop my head. I need. I, I, the, my when I'm writing and creating some some of my best words, that I'm like bopping my head, and I'm in a rhythm. And it just has to be that way. And uh, in terms of snacks. Um, <laughs> um, I'm real hood sometimes. So I like have uh, honey barbecue chips. Okay. Um, they're like the the brand is wise. I mean, I don't know, but it's, it's the reason why because that's the only one I really like. So I gotta I eat those. 
Um, I, I might burn a little weed. I think that helps me too. That's just a part of it. Um, but those are two things. Um, the chips. I love the chips and a little bit of weed. I, I, you know, I've tried sometimes, like I know like Maya Angelou would, you know, drink some, you know, she had to have her alcohol that would help her get her stuff going. Alcohol don't do it for me. So I don't do that. I know a lot of writers use alcohol, but I, uh, as a, as inspiration right. i don't but, but even without the without weed but i think the big inspiration what i need is music i can't and headphones when okay. I, was, I can't have the music playing after my speaker oh, okay. i need to have headphones like on. right in your ears in the ear it's probably gonna i'll pay for this when i get older <laughs> but like it, i need to be able to block everything out even like air sounds because i can just be in the rhythm of the words i think you know it's interesting i'm making noise I didn't know that, but a few people who read the book so far and some of the blurbs I've had have said that it's like lyrical and poetic. Mm-hmm. And, and I wasn't thinking I was doing that. You know what I mean? I, I mean, I know I have a certain type of way I like to write, but I think I, I realized from some of that feedback that that's the music coming out of me mm. and into the words. I, I have to absolutely have. I think I can tell you, it has to be a mixture of hip hop, soca, and reggae. It has to be those three. Okay. I was getting ready to follow up with what music are you listening to? So thank you for preempting me. Um, another important question is what's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Oh, shoot. Oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. There was a word. Um, I had a conversation with somebody about this the other day. I think the word is there. And I mean, in terms of T-H-E-I-R. Right, right, right. I'm saying it now. Um, I think it's not someone that's spelling it right, but I, yeah, no, sometimes I forget how to spell it. And it's weird because there's only a couple of letters, but I forget how to spell it at time. I think that's one of the words. The the hardest words to remember to spell the words to me are the shortest, are the shortest Interesting. words. Interesting. See, I'm the opposite. I have a really hard time with lots of letters, especially the same uh-huh. letter. Like a word like acknowledgement, that could give me a full heart attack. Or like a word like recommend, another one that's just too many. It's too many consonants. Like, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going today. Like, I don't know how many M's I want to throw in there. Dealer's choice. Uh, (laughs) If it's shorter, yeah, I don't know. That's a great question. How many C's? I have no idea. But the shorter (laughs) words work for me because I can kind of just remember what they look like. When it starts to get to be a lot of letters, I'm like, I don't even know if it looks right. Like, I'll look at it and be like, that looks, I think that's right. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm a good, t- I'm a good speller. I'm, 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 I get that from my mother. Uh, my mother, I get that from her. I'm general, I've always kind of been a really good speller. I may not, I might be a typo king. Okay. I think on my Twitter hand, I'm, I typos is my Same. thing, but like, but like <laughs> I'm generally a good speller. I'll give that to my moms. Okay. Okay. Um, I want to talk about you writing a book because this is your first book and you've you're really accomplished in the activism space. You are a TED fellow. You had a podcast. You've done all these things. You're you're a known quantity in the activism world, but this is your first book. Do you have imposter syndrome? Do you have insecurities about entering this space? Like, can you talk about what it's like? Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> Shit, that's why I'm in therapy now. Uh-huh. <laughs> are you kidding me? Yeah, I mean... Yeah, so I definitely sometimes I definitely uh, struggle with those things of not feeling like I'm, I'm you're not enough. That's what uh, uh, fundamentally that's what imposter syndrome is, um, and uh, I think I struggle with it a lot because here's this thing, right? And just kind of getting deeper, but I struggle with guilt a lot, mm. right? And I mean through this book, I mean you may even see that it may even come out as an undertone, but and and what I mean like and. I, and and because I struggle with that at times, sometimes I feel I'm not deserving of. 
Mm. That's one thing. The other thing is that I don't know. I've never. I'm surprised when people listen. I was surprised when Key. I will tell you this story. I, I met Kia. You spoke about uh, before we came on. We spoke about Kia Layman. That's my big homie, right? That's my my bro, right? And I remember the first time I met him in 2010. And I he was still at teaching at Bass, and I had organized a trip to bring some kids from Brownsville up there. And I didn't know who he was. Um, I just knew that I was gonna he's gonna he's gonna do a mini English class with these seventh graders. And I thought he I know Vassar, so I know in my mind, KSA Layman is a white dude. Okay. And I walk into the room and he got on a, you know, at the time when he still wore blazers and not hoodies, he wore okay. blazers and he had a pair of jeans at Air Force One. So I was like, You the preacher, you the professor? He's like, Yeah, bro. But here's the part. He was like, I'm so such a fan of your work. And I was like, What the fuck is he talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and I, from in prison, I had a blog. I had a blog called Pens from the Pen. Actually, it's still up somewhere. You can still find it. And I used to write. I said, I was, that's where I would put my writings. And apparently, he was reading my shit. Wow. <laughs> I was like, you're reading my, I was like, how? Whatever. But I'm always surprised when people think I, I am good at things, hmm. even as a writer, even as a speaker. I mean, I think it's a struggle of like always not, not, not feeling like I'm good enough. I think that's a, you know, that's a part of it too. And, there's some trauma involved with that and all that sort of stuff too. So yeah, all the things that you say, I've, all the things I've been able to be a part of, or I've been able to contribute to uh, in the work I've been able to be a part of, I, I, you know, I also just kind of feel like, you know, I'm just, I'm just a small person, like in a line, a lot of other people hmm. doing it. Right. I'm not like, you know, I'm just a line of people doing the other, I'm just contributing what I could. So sometimes I feel like, People say, Marlon, no, you need to do this. Or even with the book, uh, you know, I'm thinking if I have friends like, you know, Kissy and Darnell and them folks who are always like, Marlon, you know, we need to hear this. Or, or Michael, too. Michael doesn't say But we need to hear this from you. I'm like, why do you think I got something to say? <laughs> you know, um, but I, but the way for me that I've also sort of deal with it in a helpful way is, uh, in a healthy way, excuse me, is by really, um, meditating on what people who I care about, who I know care about me, what they say and believe in them. Mm. That's the hard thing. Like really sitting back and believe in them. And they're not just saying it's because I don't know. I'm tall. I don't know. I can't think of why, why I was, you know, but right. I, I, I can come up with excuses for why they said it. Or they said it could be just friends or whatever, but I, I I'm, I'm getting better at listening to people who love me. Is there something in you that shifts when you start to believe it for yourself? Like, is there a moment, you know, someone Darnell's telling you, you got to tell the story, you got to tell the story. And then at what point are you like, okay, I'm going to do it. What is that shift for you? Honestly, it's a shift that goes back and forth, but I think the shift comes from knowing, I think here's the thing. I think that there's somebody else who needs to hear it. Okay. Like when they were saying that stuff about me, like one way to take it is like, oh, you're a good writer. So you should just write it. But the other part of it is more so that I know somebody else needs to hear this. Hmm. And like that, that's even like when I give talks and all that sort of stuff or programs I've been a part of or created, like somebody else needs this. Somebody else needs to hear this. Um, and that's what pushes me into doing it. Like I'm going to take this risk and give a damn TED talk and talk about my life in a way I had never talked spoke about it in public. And you know what I mean? Like it's, it's not about me. I think that's it. It's not about me. So good. Okay. I know this is sort of, a rude question because we're recording this before your book has even come out. So you can tell me to fuck off and that's fine. I won't take it personal. <laughs> but do you know what comes next for you? 
And I know this is so rude because, again, we're recording this before your book has come out. So I get it. Yeah, because my, you know, my flop. I don't know. Um, it's not going to flop. It's going to be great. <laughs> it's going to be a hit. It's a good book. You wrote a good book. You wrote an interesting book. You told a story in an interesting and different way than I feel like we get. We, I mean, there are so many prison memoirs, if you will, and this is different. Mm-hmm. So I feel like for folks who are interested in it, I think I think people will be excited by it because it is different. And if there isn't something that you have coming next, if your next thing is like taking a vacation or like taking a nap or something, yeah. that's fine too. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know what's next. I mean, I, you know, I, I plan when the borders open back up to be able to go back to Trinidad. I have mm-hmm. a um, place I can go to out there and just get away from a little bit. That's one. What's next? Um, I don't know. I got so I'm gonna put it. Why not? Why not be bold for a second? Yeah, put it out. That? Put it out there. Let's do it. So 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 I mean. One is other books. I always have a dream. I'm, I want to write black romantic comedies, right? But, but right, I just I love romantic comedies. That's another thing. It's like a fun fact about me. I love them joints. But I, I like I want to write black romantic comedies. I've never written one or anything like that. But there's a part of me like to my possibility that I want to. But um, so that's one thing. But Ava Dunay be stalking me on Instagram. Okay, okay. <laughs> so we're trying to get her to make something with you. Okay, right, right. Okay. <laughs> I'm obviously joking. She's not stalking me, but she definitely follow me and like some posts. I don't know how that happens. I don't know nobody that be like, I'm not in that circle, but, um, you know, I was on Ava. Let's go Ava. Come on. (laughs) Anybody who knows Ava, please send her our way. I, this is very important to me because I too love a romantic comedy. Do you like romantic comedy books only, or do you like romantic comedy films? Both. And what is your go-to romantic comedy film? What's your favorite? What's your a one? Oh, of course, Love Jones. I'm sorry, I'm, okay. I'm in that. I'm, I'm a classic. But like that was, I would read them inside. So when I was inside in prison, I would read like deep nonfiction and historical books and all that sort of stuff, and you know policy books. But I always have. Like, okay, now it's time to read a uh, romantic, um, some romantic novel. It's not because I don't. I, I liked. I loved how human emotions connect like different from different people i like to see that connect in this awkwardness and all that sort of how they end up making something happen out of it and those things have happy endings like those things get to have happy endings you know what i mean and obviously you know like this book you know not all things get to because you but i I like to create these happy endings from things you know so and i love right now i love watching them so i'll i'll just go on netflix or hulu and i just find which one obviously if it's not, if it doesn't pull my interest within the first five minutes, it's off. Right. Um, but I love them joints. Oh my gosh. I love a romantic comedy. I love love and basketball. Which, oh, yeah. what romantic comedy books do you love? Like for people who want to read some good romantic comedy books, can you like name just a few that you love? Please don't get mad at me for this. I will not. <laughs> I love James Patterson. <laughs> oh my God. Is that the notebook guy? <laughs> Yeah. Okay. No, no, that no. James, no. Notebook guy is Nicholas Sparks. No, 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 no. no, no. That's Nicholas Sparks. No, no. Uh, I don't. No. I don't but know. I, I love that. I love the Notebook too. I Nicholas don't know Sparks. any romantic comedy books. I do not read anything that's like romantic at all. But I love a romantic comedy movie, which I have talked about before. I just for some reason I cannot invest the time in a romantic comedy book. But I could spend the same amount of time watching five romantic comedy movies. I don't I know. I haven't, I haven't read a romantic comedy book in a little bit now. I could be honest with you. I haven't read one in, in, in a little bit but yeah to me I, I, but i can watch some movies all day yes oh my god the movies are so watchable all day 
Okay, I'm gonna ask you for a few more book recs, which I hope I need my black card on that. Sorry. No. (laughs) Anything a black person does is black. I don't want to talk about like (laughs) please do not come for me about a black card. Get out of my face. Okay. (laughs) If you if for people who love your book, Bird Uncaged, what else would you recommend to them to read? Maybe not the same kind of book, but a book that's in conversation, something that you think might help them on their journey, just some things that you might think would be a good pairing. Yeah, I think Mariam Kaba, uh, How Will We Get There, I believe it is, child of a book. Um, Monty Perry's uh, Breed. Obviously, I would say heavy um, to um, Kese. I mean, and be clear, I'm not saying, <laughs> I'm about to sh- shoot myself in the foot. I was about to say, I'm not putting myself on, the, on that on their levels. But like, I think there's definitely conversations ha- uh, happening there. And you know what? And this is just me taking a leap because I'm actually going to be in conversation with his daughter in a couple of weeks. Well, by the time this come out around the same time, I think the autobiography of Malcolm X, mm. I'm going to be in a conversation with his daughter uh, at an event, a book event, but in his own too. I think uh, his book, even though it's autobiography and there's nuance and there's questions to all that, you know, accuracy and all those sort of things in the book, but that particular life, the story of his life in that that's told in that book, we, 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 we sort of like uh, romanticize Malcolm and, you know, this great leader and all that sort of stuff. But I don't think a lot of people, even in the activism world, would want somebody like him around them. Hmm. Right. I mean, he has politics that obviously we would question now. and right, all that. Right, stuff. Right, I'm not denying that. But like I'm talking about like where he comes from. Hmm. You know what I mean? Where, like his background. Like, he was a hood dude. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? He was a hood dude who had who was constantly learning. And right. constantly growing. And that's why I say I think I'm in conversation with him. I think like it's a hood dude who's constantly growing and evolving and doing and and being okay with doing it in public. Yeah. Yeah. We did a whole episode on that book um last October because I think the Lamont, book turned, right? Yeah, with Mark Lamont Hill. And we talked we talked a little bit about, you know, that evolution and also what he could have been had he been able to live, you know, like what mm-hmm. what that would have looked like. Cause a lot of his politics were things that we probably don't agree with now, but you know, mm-hmm. he didn't have the opportunity to evolve. Okay. All the people who are listening to this podcast are gonna go, they're gonna pick up your book, they're gonna read it. What's the thing that you hope they'll keep in mind as they're reading your work? I want to keep in mind that this book is also about them. Mm. I think that's the simplest way. I think this book, this book is about them, whoever you are reading it. The book is also about you. I think, you know, it's my story from, and you know, through, through a lens that I have, but I think it's relatable, right? I would say this is not a prison book. I always say this is not a prison book. It has a lot to do with prison, but it's not a prison book. I think if you read it, you get that, you know, um, Read it and see where you fit into the story mm. and how your story fits into it. And imagine your possibilities, you know? Yeah. Okay, last one. If you could have one person, dead or alive, read your book, who would you want it to be? Maya Angelou. That was easy for you. Oh, my gosh. Most yeah, people yeah. hum and ha. No, no. Maya Angelou, no question. I mean, the title, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. K. Um, So, like, without question. Um, and... I'm a complex dude, so I'm gonna be very clear. I'm a complex dude. So my Angelou is one person I would want to read who's not like does it only have to be one person? Can give I can me, I give me another person? It's fine. This, I'll break the rules. These are <laughs> these are made up rules by me for my made up <laughs> podcast that talks about books. Do whatever you want. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. So um my Angelou number one on top of the list and Jay Z. Ooh. Okay. I did not see that coming. I like it. I know you didn't see it coming. (laughs) I like it. I like it. That's that complexity. 
Well, Marlon, this was such a treat. Thank you so much for your time and your generous answers and just being in conversation with me. Again, um, the book is called Bird Uncaged and Abolition an abolitionist freedom song. It's out in the world. You can get it wherever you get your books. Marlon, thank you so much for being here. Thank, thank you. And, I, I, and my voice is the audio book, so you get to hear my voice. And oh, it is? My, my, my washed out uh, Trinidadian accent in the book too, so you I get to hear wait. that. Okay, I have to go listen to it. I read it physical, but now I got to go at least listen to the sample. Um, thank you for being here and everyone else. We will see you in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening and thank you to Marlon for being my guest. I'd also like to thank Jocelyn Pedro for making this interview possible. Our June book club pick is The Undying, A Meditation on Modern Illness by Ann Boyer, which we will discuss on Wednesday, June 30th with Michael Denzel-Smith. Please make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take one moment to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram, at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter, and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Sebastian Alcala is our sound editor and producer. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajith. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Thank you.